So here we go. Uh, October the 28th, 2018, lecture discussion number 42 on the book of Joel. And I should interject here because if you have not been here for the first 41 of these 42 lectures, it's going to be a hard day. No offense. Did anyone bother to tell you that? Probably not, huh? No. More fun this way, I hear. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to start with this. There's a study that's out uh, that is, I think, relatively conservative. Uh Oh, Let's see, I can't find my pencil because it's buried in the... And I thought I I had the second song. None of this is my fault. Now, let me see if I can find the real one. Okay, we're going to go blue today. This is the, I have to have the Japanese ones. They're much more interesting. Okay, where was a high? For those of you on the Internet, this is how we operate here. Seventy. This one's dead. <laughs> yes. Shut it down. Everybody, get to the buffet. Oh, okay. I've done that last week. Yes, you did. I think we have some kind of uh, distortion, Terry, in that monitor. I don't know what to say to you. We'll just keep on moving like we've done it like this forever. 78% is the agreed upon number now for the evangelical Christian community. Now, this is the considered to be the fundamentalist, the most conservative community. 78% of evangelical Christians answered and that they believe that Jesus Christ is a created being. 78%. Believe Jesus is a created being. I am writing this out so that you get the full impact of it and don't misunderstand me. They, they say that they believe that he is the first created being. So they will, well, he's first. As if that attenuates it in any way. They also say that he is the greatest, he is the first, and he is the greatest of the created beings. 78%. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't think it's that low. My experience uh, in the last 25 years or better is that it's far higher than that. It's at least 85% or 90%. You could go to any church you want anywhere in this city and ask them, is Jesus Christ the first and greatest created being in all of time? And they will answer to you, yes, at a rate, I believe, higher than 80%. The pastors believe it. The elders believe it. The Sunday school teachers believe that. And, of course, it is damnable heresy. It is as far from the truth as possible, but it is overwhelmed the end of the age of the Gentiles. Okay, so let me get rid of that now. That's how we start. I got a letter from Joe in Seattle. Hi, Joe. And he wanted me to spend today on black hole singularity and time, whether or not time can exist in a black hole. And I really wanted to do that today. If I had known I had a visitor in the front row, I, by golly, I would have. But uh, I'm you not. Have a cell phone. I can't tell you. 
you can't. You've got to get to me sometime. Maybe blow a trumpet or something. I'll, I'll come running like Batman or something. Anyway, we're not going to do Joe and black hole singularity and whether or not time can escape a, a black hole and whether or not black holes actually are dark matter, or dark energy, or any of those things from the astrophysics community have uh, have foundation. Sorry. Doggone it. Anyway, we ended last week at Thomas, Mary, and Simeon. Not necessarily in that order. Simeon Peter, son of Jonah. We could and will add Mary and Martha and Moses and Elijah, Jonah, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus to Thomas, Mary Magdalene, and Simeon, son of Jonah, which, of course, is Peter. This is what Christ calls Peter, Simeon, son of Jonah. One of the last things he says to Peter is this name. He says it three times. Very important. And that uh, that's where we left off. That ultimately is... Uh, where we'll be today, devoted primarily to John 20, 27, John 21, 19, and John 21, 22. I'll get to that in a minute. That was for the vast Internet audience. Jesus Christ, post-resurrection, says this. Do not be unbelieving. Be believing. And you cannot follow him unless you are believing. In fact, he says, be, do not be unbelieving, but believing, and follow me. Those are commandments that Christ gives to his apostles. They are some of his final words to them. They, Of all the words he said, these are post-resurrection, the, some of the very last words. How important do you think they thought they were? He was cleaning it up before he left. And they knew that. Thus, we should also have the obvious expectation that these words of Christ are especially of interest. They are, again, the final instructions, if you will. Here, here's the final pieces I'm going to go. He's on the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. He is the bridegroom. The bridegroom comes right to the altar. And then he leaves before the, the marriage is finalized. And he goes to prepare a place for his bride. Christ is doing that. And he is giving his apostles these instructions, if you will. And the mysteries embedded within them are incredible. Absolutely amazing. And I submit that those that apply, that John has written of, that have never been solved. In other words, the last parts of John, John 21... No one has solved it yet, in my view. Now, there's uh, no shortage of speculations. There's never shortages of, ex of speculations. However, in my opinion, nothing has been offered in, that in anywhere comes close. Now, of course, I have the most humble of humble opinions. But, uh, again, I don't think that anything has been written that fully accounts through all of through the last 2,000 years, it fully accounts for the statements made by the Lord God Almighty himself concerning Peter and John. He says some extraordinary things. Do you know that there are many people out there that believe that John is still alive? You think I'm kidding? No, there, there's a large group of people that believe that John the Apostle has never died. Look it up during their lecture. You have phones. You'll find it. It's pretty interesting. Most of you are fascinated by it. Do it now. I'll keep going. 
I think it's fantastically interesting, and it's something that we obviously will have to discuss. It's one of the opinions of what Christ is saying to John and Peter, and probably the, the most foremost. That's a kind of a redundancy, but nonetheless, I'll keep it. There is no possibility that the omniscient creator of all things, who's Jesus Christ, did not remember when he's talking to John and Peter. He did, there's no possibility that omniscience can forget. He is the great rememberer. He knew this positioning of Peter and John at the tomb. He would know, wouldn't he? Keep in mind, Peter and John are linked. And Peter is called Simeon, which of course is the... Hearing of Israel, that is why the brother Simeon is imprisoned by Joseph. The hearing of Israel is imprisoned because they didn't know who Joseph is. Peter is called Simeon's son of Jonah. There's no way, no way that Christ, knowing the sign of Jonah, because it is the pattern which he has chosen, would not know that this and this and this have a tremendous relationship. But he also knows that John and Peter, of course, because he's omniscient God, he knows John and Peter are at the tomb together. Right? We've covered this last week. So this is slightly a review for who? That's right, the visitor. That's correct. And you, because you never come regularly. You know, okay. And also people, there's people on the Internet that will only listen to one lecture. So I have to be concerned about that. You may ask, why don't they listen to more than one lecture? <laughs> You'll know the answer to that here in a minute. <laughs> anyway. <sighs> See, this is what happens when I don't get to write this lecture during the music. Okay. Peter is first to the tomb. Peter and John are positioned together at the tomb. They are linked together, connected together. Peter got there first. John, however, blew right by him and entered the cave, entered the tomb. Peter saw the face cloth and the grave cloth from his frame of observation, which is a distant, if you will, a further frame of observation. A reference outside the tomb. Observation, very important in physics, as you know. And then, so when you see these differences in observations, you pay attention to them if you've been trained to do so. I want to try to train you all to be just like me. Yay! John went immediately into the tomb. Peter was outside the tomb. So John saw the face cloth folded and believed from a near position. Peter had a more further, more distant position. So what am I trying to make you evaluate? God knew that. Christ knew that when he's talking to them. John was not unbelieving, but believing. As soon as he saw the grave clothes and the folded face cloth, immediate belief in the resurrection of Christ. Peter looked, the word says, without understanding at the grave clothes of Christ. He had no understanding. Perplexed, John knew it was evidence of Christ resurrecting himself. As soon as he saw the folded grave cloth, I'm sorry, the folded uh, face cloth, the tallet, he knew that Christ had resurrected himself. That's John 2:19 through 22. Obviously, the emplacement of these two, John, Peter and John, side by side, 
in Scripture with regard to the tomb and with regard to the end of the, the last instructions in John, John 21, that is by design. This is God's intent, His purpose, and it's for us to decipher the array of meanings that are contained in the persons of John and Simeon, the son of Jonah. And I should emphasize that the Apostle John um, says that there is the Scripture involved in this. The Scripture. So what's the obvious question? John says in John 2.22 that they did not know the Scripture. Who's they? Understanding the Scripture, John 29. They didn't understand the Scripture. So for us, we have to discover which Scripture is being addressed by John here, the Apostle John, the Holy Spirit through John. Of all the Scriptures, which is the Scripture that they did not understand? And by they, you have to decide who they is. Um, it's something, it's a question I've already answered somewhat in the past few weeks, but I thought I think it's best to submit it in today, just in case. So let's re-read those texts and, and look at what we're talking about here a little bit closer. Go to John 2.18. Is that correct? Or do I, did I mean 20.18? Let me see. I did, I meant 20. Old people. Let's start at verse 3. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, that's John, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. But he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there. I'm sorry. I might have this, uh, as I'm reading this, I'm going, wow, did I say this correctly to you? And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. I had this in the inverse, didn't I? And he saw the linen cloth laying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed. So I, I think that I told you the opposite of that, did I? Okay, well, that is me being old. My goodness. For as yet he did not know the scripture. And there we have. The other disciple who came into the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet he did, they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again, rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own homes. So let me repeat that, because I obviously misspoke. Peter and John are running to the tomb. Peter got there first. John came in second. Peter had no understanding of what it was that he was looking at. John did. Their frame of reference was such that Peter's frame of reference was uh, unable to decipher. John's frame of reference was that it was obvious. John says that they did not understand because they did not know the Scripture. 
And I'm asking, which scripture is he talking about? Which, which is the scripture that John and Peter and the rest of the disciples had to know? And did anyone know it? When he says they did not know, is John including himself? So there, hopefully that lays it out perfectly. There is a scripture, the scripture, that is critical to understanding the grave clothes and the face cloth, the folded face cloth, because that's what they looked at. So there is a scripture that defines that, that uh, tells us what this is all about. Now, for those of you who have already figured it out, I know you have, and I give you uh, all your deserved extolments. Your certificates of commendation have been mailed this time. We used to hand them out to you when you got ahead of the class and bring you up front and, and tell everybody how smart you are, but the booing and the throwing of food started to get out of hand, and we've discontinued that practice as we should. Anyway, getting a rough start here today. Psalm 1610 is the scripture that they did not know. So if you're trying to figure out why Christ has grave clothes, why he folded the face cloth, because he should not have grave clothes, but he does. Why would he have them? We've covered this hundreds of times, but he has them. He makes sure he has them, and he makes sure that Nicodemus knows why he has them. Because Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea know that there's not a reason that Christ should have grave clothes. Or a face cloth, for that matter. They know, but they do it anyway. So they do it knowing why it it isn't necessary, but yet it has to be necessary because omniscience demands so. The answer to all of that, why the grave clothes and why the face cloth, is knowing the scripture that John knows. I'm positive John knows it, and I'm positive that Nicodemus knows it. That's why they are able to figure it out so quickly. Let me repeat, I submit that Psalm 1610 is the scripture that is the scripture but not for the reasons most commentators will propose. So let's go and read that verse. Why are we reading it again? That's right, because of the new person. New people make this happen. We have to do all kinds of things for their sake and for our enjoyment. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you, (coughs) excuse me, will not leave my soul and Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption or to undergo is the actual word. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo corruption. So, David is saying to God, I know something about the Holy One. I know that the Holy One will never see corruption. And Paul assigns this verse, Psalm 16, 9 through 10, these verses to Christ, Acts 13, 35 through 37, as does Peter, who doesn't have a clue what the Scripture is, but when he writes his uh, testimony, if you will, his, the Peter epistles, He includes this verse as well as at Acts 2, 25, 28. He says it out loud. Jesus Christ, 
according to Paul, and Peter, again, did not know this scripture, but uh, he comes to know it and he recites it in his in his uh, sermonettes or sermons, lectures. Jesus Christ is the Holy One, according to Paul and Peter. The holy thing is what he's called in Luke one thirty-five. There is only one Holy One. So let's go ahead and read really fast Acts 13. This is Paul. And we'll start here at, uh, let's see, verse 35. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Which means three days, three nights in the tomb, Jesus Christ's body did not decompose or have any death of a single cell. If you know that, then you know why he folded the face cloth. Why he even had a face cloth. Why he even had grave clothes. If the body can't decompose, why do I need grave clothes? (laughs) You're playing with the baby, aren't you? (laughs) This will happen to you. Yeah. You'll annoy everyone around you by playing with the baby. Well, wait a minute. You annoy everyone around you already. Oh, golly. I didn't see that coming, though, did you? No. Slipped it right in there. Try to keep up. One of us is by the minute here. Obviously, Psalm 1610 is critically important. Psalm 1610 is fulfilled, literally fulfilled by the folded face cloth and the grave clothes. This is a prophecy that the Holy One, you'll be able to know who the Holy One is because the Holy One cannot, it is impossible for his body to see corruption. It is something that is a sign of who he is. That is why Christ made Nicodemus cover him with grave clothes and wrap his face with a face cloth because it makes no sense. It's precisely why he did it. So you have to know how it's so, how it is the fulfillment. I'm telling you it is, but how is it? How is this so? In other words, the folded face cloth and the empty grave clothes prove that Jesus resurrected himself. That's where you go. He says he does. I resurrect, destroy this body, I will destroy this temple, I will resurrect it. I can lay it down and resurrect it at will. He says that as well. No one can take my life, I lay it down, I raise it up at will. The grave clothes and the face cloth are prima facie evidences that Christ's body did not decompose. No corruption is therefore proof of resurrection. Do you see how that's done? Start thinking about it. If the body doesn't go to corruption, then it, it is going to be resurrected. John saw the face cloth and he went, wow, this is resurrection. He leaped from no corruption to resurrection. Why is there a relationship between no corruption and resurrection? 
Why are they intrinsically connected? No corruption is proof of resurrection, and not just proof of resurrection, but also the requirements of Christ's resurrection. His resurrection is not the same as any other resurrection. Christ's body could not decay. Let me repeat that. Could not decay. It's impossible. Thus, the resultant of that is that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of Psalm 1610. And what then is required to resurrect the sinless body of the Holy One? What's required to get this body resurrected? And once you recognize the vast and actually infinite implications of that question of the death and resurrection of a perfect, holy, physical body, then and only then does 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 15, begin to reveal what is actually being said there, the full meaning. Paul, with the Holy Spirit guiding him, wrote to the Corinthians that the body resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fundamental of the faith. And most people don't understand that. Why? If Christ did not resurrect, Paul says, then we of all men are the most pitiable. Our faith is futile, he says. The resurrection is the first fundamental. Everything is on top of that. Christ's resurrection is alone. It is not comparable to any resurrection, certainly not our resurrection. We die in sin. He did not. Our bodies deteriorate and rot, putrefy. The complex living body of a sinful man or woman becomes simple. And I can't repeat this enough. 78%, put him back on the board, 78% of evangelical Christians have no idea of the consequences of Psalm 16:10 and Acts 13:35 through 37 they have no idea and they don't care why don't they care why don't every pastor get up and say 78% of my congregation are idiots how come they never do that i do it not in me. You might be sitting next to an idiot. Keep that in mind. It's always a possibility. <laughs> if you don't see the idiot at the table, you know, it's probably you. Remember, there was no birth like Christ. His birth was singular. Nobody's had a birth. Sorry, Cody. No birth like Christ. No conception like Christ. His is alone. There was no life lived like his life. Christ's life is alone. A sinless life. Adam did not have a sinless life. His death was absolutely the only death like it of his kind. It wasn't like any other crucifixion. The Romans looked at what happened there and they all went, Oh my, this is God. We don't know who this is. Okay, it's God. Never had that execution squad had done thousands of these. All of a sudden had no control at all over his crucifixion. He told him where to go, told him when to go, what to do. He was in total authority, as you would expect. Earthquakes, darkness, loud voice, scared him. I mean, this is God here. 
The Romans testified that his crucifixion was the only one. No other crucifixion had any elements of this crucifixion. The death alone. So please cast aside the thinking of the 78% who believe that the resurrection of Christ was nondescript. They actually make movies showing you that it's just like every other Roman crucifixion. When in fact that isn't even close. And I've done, as you know, many lectures about did he, could he carry the cross beam? Well, he, of course he could carry. It's a piece of wood. He's omnipotent God. They consider, 78% consider Christ's crucifixion another created being crucifixion. And they consider his resurrection another created being resurrection, as opposed to an uncreated resurrection. Does that make sense? Pretend that it does. Thank you. Makes me feel better. Again, the very foundation of our faith rests on the totality of the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 15. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we testified that God raised up Christ. And we should note that that's an extraordinary statement. And you will say, well, God resurrects everybody. Yes, he does. Paul says, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified. In other words, he's saying, if Christ did not resurrect, we have told you that God raised him. And we would be false if that were not true. To repeat an often repeated question, how much power is is required to raise up an uncorrupted body? How many horsepower do you need in your winch? Let me put it this way. If the body is uncorrupted, cannot, if it's impossible for it to decay, whose body is it? How much power is required to raise God from the dead? How heavy is he? How heavy is infinity? That's what Paul is testifying of. Put it another way. How much force is demanded to resurrect a non-corrupted dead body? Those are all the same question. Always keep in mind, no one could take the life of Jesus Christ. John 10, 17. Jesus Christ cannot be killed. He must therefore lay down his life. When, that, when you understand that's true, you also know there's no other option here. If he can't be killed, he must lay down his own life. There's no other possibility. Get that entrenched in in your mind, if you will, into your thinking. Consider all these things. Uh, We have pitiful, tiny, little, finite minds. I got that. But start to think, I believe, correctly with the highest level of understanding of Jesus Christ, who he really is, not how he is portrayed in churches, 78%. Our movies, 0%. Our movies are right about Christ. They are almost all garbage. And certainly, even the very best of intentions ends up with something that is horribly askew in those things. But we love them. The old adage, there's no sucker like a Christian sucker. Boy, 
that that is I mean it's been around my whole life and I, I can't argue with the person that thought that was correct. God resurrected himself, God resurrected God, God lays down God's life, God's body cannot go to corruption, not one single cell, it is impossible. These are some of the reasons that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first of all resurrections. Meaning that his is first in order of importance with respect to importance or rank, not the first in time. All resurrections depend on his resurrection. That is one of the great doctrinal truths of Scripture. And each and every Christian should at least possess a basic understanding of the sheer size, the immensity of the resurrection of God by God. In other words, don't fall into the 78%. 78% of Christians... Oh, this is hardly going to get me in trouble. Think stupidly. Do not think like this. It's not just heresy. It's indefensible. It's not just blasphemy. It is foolishness. It's destructive. It will damage your children. That You have an undefensible position. Sooner or later, your children will figure that out. If this is wrong, what else have you told them that is wrong? Pretty soon everything looks to them as wrong. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, all resurrections depend on his resurrection. Why that's so? We need to have as much of that as we can. As I said before, whenever the student of Scripture confronts an issue that includes the triunity of God, because that's what this is, God is raising himself. Jesus Christ raised himself. God the Father raised Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit raised Christ. This is a triune, and the Bible says that. We have, we have Scriptures that assign the resurrection to each one, per, each person of the triune Godhead. So whenever you confront an issue of the triunity of God, it's time to do what? Come to a complete stop. And do not have a simple answer. Because you will always be what? Wrong. Always. If your answer is simple, you're wrong. How complex is the triunity of God? If somebody stands in front of you and says, I've got it solved, as you know, what's the rule here? Pick up the chair, throw it, and run. It's come to a complete stop when these subjects that are talking about have incorporated in them the triune nature of God, the us, the Elohim. Take stock of what must be here. Proceed with respect. Have an expectation that your mind is going to struggle figuring out what is really happening here. Okay? The folded face cloth and the grave clothes are are attestations of Psalm 1610. And therefore, they're authentications. They're verifications of who Jesus Christ really is. That's why he put those there. Did he know John and Peter would come running to the tomb and find them? Absolutely, he did. He's outside of time. Did he know that Peter wouldn't figure it out? But John would. Yes. What are the consequences of not figuring it out? 
He is the Holy One of God. Now, the, the, the Jewish people, bless their hearts, they have this so much better than us. They don't say what we say. We say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Nothing wrong with that at all, but I believe that 78% think that the Son is inferior to the Father. And what is that? That's blasphemy. That's heresy. It is not in the Bible. The Son is not subordinate to the Father. There's a difference between subordination and obedience. This is the triune nature of God. You must be very careful that you do not diminish the person of Christ or any of the triune nature. You'll have people that think the Holy Spirit's in third, third place. He's a lieutenant colonel versus a, a general and a full bird colonel. That is not the case. But the Jews don't say it that way. They say the Lord God. Then they say the angel. The angel of the Lord God, and then they say the Spirit of the Lord God. So they have the Lord God in all three. They make no mistake. They, however, do not believe there's three persons. They have a, they think that we're polytheistic. So be prepared for that. The folded face cloth and the grave clothes are separated. Let's talk about that. They're not lined together. I'll put them on the board. Here is the folded face cloth. Pretend that's folded. Here are the grave clothes. Pretty cool, huh? There is a distance. I want to know how many feet are they apart? How big is the cave? They are separated. They're not lying together. The Bible makes that very specific, and it is an incredibly important detail. How far apart are they? Why are they not on top of each other? Why, aren't, why isn't the faith cloth over here next to the grave clothes? Again, why do we even have grave clothes? Nicodemus probably thought, why am I doing this? Okay, I know why I'm doing this. But I imagine for a while it was a mystery to everybody. But I think eventually Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea figured it out. Did the women have a clue? No. Don't ever be embalmed by a woman, therefore is the doctrine. Could be a mistake there. We can't allow it. Be thinking. Could be critical. Point being is, is that those grave clothes are not connected. They are separated. They are lying apart. How many feet? Why is he doing that? The face cloth, so let me go ahead and say it this way. The face God cloth and the body God, God clothes are detached. They're independent. Let me say it another way. The face of God and the body of God, of God are separated. What's that mean? I've given this clue before, a few weeks before, and I've been waiting for someone, anyone, to seize upon it. 
The face of God is separated, divided from the body of God. There is a piece of information now for you to start considering. When John saw the face cloth and the body cloths, if you will, divided, separated, as well as the existence of them, when he saw that they were there, because the women were coming to the tomb, right, with the clothes or with the with the... The linens, they hadn't quite, they hadn't wrapped the body of Christ. When John walked in, the body of Christ has been wrapped. He doesn't know who did it. Maybe they'd had some idea, but it has already been wrapped. And then he sees that, so the existence of the grave clothes and the folded face cloth, but he also sees the condition of them. Not only do they exist, but the condition that they exist in is immediately understood by John. John understood and believed that Christ resurrected himself. As soon as he saw the evidences, Peter did not. Again, the word describing Peter is defined to look upon with questioning, with perplexity. Not the case with John. John looked upon it with immediate understanding. And it would be fair to compare John and Peter at the cave and John and Peter at the transfiguration because the same pattern exists there. John and Peter during the crucifixion of Christ. And John and Peter and John, John's gospel, chapter 21. John is the other disciple and, and Peter is Simeon, son of Jonah. They're placed in variance, especially at the transfiguration, but also here at the tomb. Why? Simeon, son of Jonah, again, implies Peter is representative of the nation of Israel. That's Simeon is representative of the hearing of Israel. The hearing of Israel is diminished, is imprisoned. You find that in the story of Joseph. Simeon, again, to repeat, is the one he and Levi kill men who willingly underwent circumcision to, to glorify and to obediently serve the living God. Simeon comes in and kills them all. An act of tremendous treachery and evil. Joseph imprisons Simeon because Simeon is a brother of great violence, but he represents the hearing of Israel. Remember the cup? Who had the cup? Uh, Does Benjamin get in prison? No, it's Simeon. Well, that's part of the Simeon prophecy, as you know. Simeon, the son of, or the brother of Joseph, Simeon the prophet, Simeon the Cyrenian that carries the uh, crossbar of the of Christ, and Simeon, Peter, son of Jonah, if you will. All of those produce a picture of Israel, and that I don't think can be discussed uh, any other way. John knew the scripture. Psalm 16.10. Peter did not. John saw the folded face cloth. Never before had anyone seen a folded face cloth in a tomb belonging to the deceased. Does that make sense to you? Who takes the face cloth off and folds it? Has anyone ever done that before? You could say Lazarus had a face cloth. Did Lazarus take his off and fold it and then get out of his grave clothes and then walk out of the tomb? Did he move the rock? No. This is the only time in history that a face cloth has been taken off and folded and put away from the grave clothes. It's never happened before and it's never happened since. John saw it and knew it. 
Never before had anyone seen a folded face cloth in a tomb belonging to the deceased in the cave who is not in the cave and not wrapped in the face cloth or the face clothes. To repeat, Lazarus unwrapped loose, unable to free himself from death. Couldn't free himself. Who had to free him? Christ freed him on order, didn't he? With his voice. John saw grave clothes with no body inside. Never had that ever occurred and never has it occurred since. How long did John stay in the tomb cave? He's in there looking at this stuff. How long did he stay there? He's staring at the condition of the grave clothes and the folded face cloth. I think. What do tomb caves typically smell like? That have dead bodies in them. This one did not have any smell. No evidence of decomposition. How do I know that? It has no evidence, no stench at all. Because it's impossible for the body of Christ to decompose. Impossible. It's not that God wouldn't do it. It's also impossible. Did John notice that? I think he did. Did Peter notice that? Yeah, I don't think so. I think your one friend that's here is right. No, I'm doing my best to kind of put a little wedge there if I can for her sake. (laughs) What was the differences between the grave clothes of Lazarus and the grave clothes of Christ? Because John and Peter saw both. Did they perceive the disparities? Did they start in their mind going, wow, we've seen grave clothes. How many? I know John did it. Let's just ask this. How many grave clothes did John see? How, what's the death rate in a, a city the size of Jerusalem might have over a million people? How many people are dying and being put in grave clothes and face cloths, especially Jewish men? How many deaths has John seen, Peter seen? These are young men, but nonetheless, they've seen a lot of death. This one, they're in the tomb, and there is no evidence of death in the tomb at all. In the sense that there is no evidence that the body decomposed. No corruption, to repeat this, is proof of resurrection. And a specific resurrection. And John knows that because John writes it in John 11:25. Christ does not say that he is a resurrection. He says that he is the resurrection. So we have the scripture and we have the resurrection. You have all kinds of resurrections, but there is one that is the. It's a specific resurrection at that. The resurrection of a perfect, holy, sinless body. No corruption is proof of the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Note that first uh, that the first Adam and his deep sleep. God puts Adam into a deep sleep. Genesis 2.21. Now compare that to the last Adam, which Christ calls himself the second or the last Adam. They're the only two federal heads of humanity. Note that God caused the deep sleep of the first Adam. Compare the death of the unkillable one who must cause his own death. 
God commands, God the Father commands God the Son. The Lord God commands the angel of God, of the Lord God, to give up his own life. John 10, 18. Just a little aside here. Christ refers to Lazarus' death as sleep. Our friend Lazarus sleeps. Adam was put into a deep sleep. He says, Christ does, I, I go that I might wake him, John 11, 11. The first to sleep, of course, is Genesis 2, 21, Adam. Caused to sleep by God. Therefore, he has to be awakened by God. So I have this positioning again of, of the relationship of Adam, Lazarus, and Christ. Okay, let's throw a few more things on the table before we lose the first row. These are fun. As I define fun, which is a relative term. Why did I, Elijah, and Moses hide their faces from God? They're in the same cave in the sense that Moses went into a cave. Elijah went into a cave and it is the exact same cave. God comes to both of them and both of them cover their faces. Why do they do that? They have a reason. Were they, were they trying to disguise themselves? Is that your position? That would make you one of the 78%. Do not be one of the 78%. If you are one of the 78%, please send me a letter telling me why. I would be very interested. Why did they cover their faces? Obviously, God, omniscient God, who sees all things, who's outside of time, who makes time. Time is inside of Christ. He says so. He could see their faces. The disguise didn't work. If that's the means or the method or the purpose. He knew who they were. Nothing is hidden from God. Nonetheless, both Moses and Elijah in the same exact cave at different times, both hide their faces. Elijah wrapped his in his robe, his mantle. He has a face cloth. Lazarus' face was wrapped in a face cloth when he came out of the tomb. Christ ordered him to be free. The point is, yea, a point. There's clearly a theme here. Hide your face from the omniscient God. Adam was the first to hide his face, the first in grave clothes. His figs were grave clothes. I made that case a weeks ago. It would follow that, that he would also do this. The commonality with respect to Adam, Moses, and Elijah covering themselves in the physical presence of the omnipotent God of creation can't be ignored. The invisible God makes himself visible. That's Colossians 1, 15 through 18. And Adam, Moses, and Elijah hide because they're what? Sinful. Adam hid himself. Moses, Elijah hide their faces because they're sinful. Why do you have to hide your face or hide yourself when you're sinful when God physically comes and stands in front of you? Colossians 1, 15 through 18 is a great doctrinal verse. The definitive proclamation as to the deity of Jesus Christ. Oh, golly. Do I have time? Probably not. Let's do it anyway. If you have one verse that you memorize, I hope this is it. Let's see if I can find it as the trained professional that I am. I actually even have it marked, but I... Okay. 
fat old fingers. Where shall I start here? Yeah, let me. Uh, what did I tell you I was going to read? Yeah, let me do that. I was going to go to uh, Corinthians as well, but I think I'm just going to run out of time, aren't I? Let's just go to Colossians. If you're going to remember, if you're going to do something, this is the one. Here's what Paul says with the Holy Spirit. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth. Let me repeat that. He is the visible of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Does that mean he's the first created? No, it does not mean that. Let me keep reading. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is therefore all things and in him all things consist. He's infinite. And he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. He's the invisible, he is the visible God made, I'm sorry, he is the, the visible of the invisible. All things are created through him and for him. He is before all things, which means he is before time. And in him all things consist, including time. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That's, that's his re- resurrection that our whole faith is built upon. There is, there's a description of Jesus Christ as provided by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. 78% of evangelicals do not believe Colossians, uh, 1, 15 through 18. They don't believe it. Or John 1, 1 through 5, which says almost the same thing, but even stronger. Revelation 1, 8, 1, 11, 1, 17 through 18. John 8, 24, where Jesus Christ says, you have to believe that I am the I am. If you don't, you're going to perish. This is critical. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, tells us to be believing. What's he wants you to believe? Don't be unbelieving, be believing. Be in the 22%. Put your finger here. Look at my hands, he tells Thomas. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas was unbelieving. Notice that this is an evidence-based believe the evidences of my resurrection, Christ says to Thomas, John 20, 27. Previously, Thomas had placed those exact conditions. He said, unless I can put my hands here and I can see this, I'm not going to believe it. I'm of the opinion that Thomas did not reach into the side of Christ, even though he was told to, and he could. Thomas's response when he saw Christ was to declare him to be God. That's what he says. My God. It wasn't an exclamation. It was a description. My Lord and my God. He had an understanding at that point of the resurrection of God. Infinite, omnipotent God. Resurrected. They began to figure out what it meant. A while back, I raised the issue of Martha and Mary. John 11:21, John 11:32. Martha and Mary both say to Christ, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died." Twelve words. They both say that to him. 
What are the odds of that? Two women say at different times, in the same location, independently repeat word for word a 12-word sentence to Christ. What is that? A coincidence? I'm not buying that. That's collusion. No doubt about it. Martha says to Jesus Christ, who is the Colossians 1, 15 through 18, and John 11, 1 through 5, Revelation 1, 8 through 11. That's Jesus Christ. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What is she saying? What's the implications of that statement? He's omnipresent. Everything consists in him. Everything exists in him. Lord, if you've been here, this spot here, I mean, you were, you got to be here. You were, you were over here. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Really? Ask the centurion. Martha follows this, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So put those two sentences together. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, I want you to evaluate those two statements that Martha directed to who? The one whom, in whom all things exist, consist. How would you characterize those? 78% or 22%? Jesus, knowing all things, responds to her with, Lazarus will be resurrected. And then what does she say? She says, she counters back, I know. Eventually, Lazarus will be resurrected on the last day. I know that. Got it. Christ then says, I am the resurrection. Not a resurrection, but the one upon whom all others depend. Does that influence your opinion, Martha? Knowing that I'm the resurrection. Do you believe that? He actually says, do you believe me effectively? Do you believe this? Do you believe me when I tell you I'm the resurrection? What do you think that question? Why did he ask that question? What's implied in that question? Does Martha believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Does she believe that? Does Martha even know the totality of the meaning of the resurrection? That's what I'm trying to get to you today. Do you understand the totality of the resurrection when he says that? Martha responds. He says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. That's a really nice phrase. And most, most people, most commentaries go, wow, see, isn't that fantastic? Put those three sentences together. What does she mean by this? Does she mean he's the Messiah? Probably. Does she think he's God himself? Colossians 1, 1 through 15, uh, 15 through 18. Is Martha 78% or 22%? Then Martha, after she says that, she takes off. Read the text. And she secretly meets with Mary. What's well, the obvious question? I got a couple of sneaky women here. What's going on? Can't wait for the mail. I'm just showing off for the visitor. You know, I'm never like this. I'm never. I'm really a lot more professional. She'll have to come back. I have to come back to see the real me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I wouldn't go anywhere near a man that, that tormented me like this, young lady. 
Just, just some personal advice. Run while you can. Okay, he's pretty talented and fairly smart. I wish I had his hair. I used to. I got pictures. Anyway, where was I? Martha went her way and secretly meets with Mary, tells her Christ is calling for her. Did Christ call for Mary? What are we doing here? She doesn't. So what's the secret? And then Mary ultimately says the exact same 12 words to Jesus. Word for word. What, you, Martha, write it down? Here. You're so dumb, you're, you gotta, I gotta, I got you, you have to do this. Who has an older sister? Okay, what's, what's that relationship like? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> Everyone weeps. Mary ultimately says the exact same thing that Martha said. So Martha obviously wanted Mary to say those words, didn't she? She told her that Christ is calling for her. Here's the 12 words. And then Mary breaks down weeping and everyone with Mary is weeping. Why is everyone weeping with Mary? Because they're paid to weep. They're professional weepers. They're fake weepers. Mary weeps. We all weep. We're getting paid for this. It's exactly what they're doing. Now, what do I want to know? If I got a whole bunch of fake weepers there, might have 20, 25, 30, and Mary paid for them, Martha paid for them, they had the mourners, professional mourners. If they're faking it, what about Mary? She faking it too? Why would she do that? What does Christ do? He groans. And then he what? He weeps. Next week, we figure all that out.